Shaquille O'Neal, one of the most dominating centers to play in the NBA. Trust me, I'm just getting started. The seven foot one former powerhouse is an analyst for Inside the NBA, but the majority of his success is now tied to big business. You know, it's been, been a great run. I'm not going anywhere. Nicknamed the Big Diesel, he shares the secrets of making millions off the Shaq brand. Uh, it's never been about money with me. With 19 years on the court, not only Shaq known for his big personality, but also a well-publicized feud with former teammate Kobe Bryant. I knew he was a fabulous player, just felt you know, sometimes that he didn't do it the right way. And despite winning four championships, he admits to some regret when it comes to his legacy. To what extent do you think you made the most of your talent? Only regret I have right now is two regrets. Actually, three. We traveled to Shaq's 70,000 square foot Orlando estate, equipped with a full basketball court, a collection of cars, and endless memorabilia from his career. It's a life he dreamed of as a poor, bullied kid growing up in New Jersey. All that's coming up next, right here on the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. After your um, NBA retirement, your agents convened what I understand they called like a Shaq summit right here at your Orlando home with some of your commercial partners. Why did they do it and what was the benefit of doing so? Well, Shaq Summit has been going on for many years. Uh, you know, I have a lot of endorsements, I have a lot of partnerships. We wanted to create synergy amongst the partners, so everybody's working together. You know, really don't want me all over the place. So, you know, and it's just a chance for other companies, you know, to do business. For example, uh, Icy Hot, distributed in a lot of places. Let's just say I have a, a, a deal with uh, a bubblegum company. You can put the bubblegum company on the, on the Icy Hot box. Everybody sees it. So, again, it was just a, a chance for all the companies to have synergy amongst one another. And then the reason I did it after I retired, I just wanted to let them know that, you know, it's been, been a great run. I'm not going anywhere. Uh, if you want to continue to, to do business, that would be appreciated. If not, we understand. But trust me, I'm just getting started. And I think one of the companies used that first one after you retired the first Shack Summit to basically say, well, we aren't going to do this anymore. And then after they saw what the event was and it was positive, they changed their mind, right? Yes, they changed their mind, uh, you know, because it's all about presence. And, uh, you know, when you're on an NBA team, I think you're allowed to be on TV maybe 20 times a year. Uh, and then the playoffs, you, you know, you're probably on a lot. But I think with TNT, we're, we're on over 100 times a year. So the exposure would still be there. And I don't think they really knew that or understood that. And, uh, you know, I told myself, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm, I'm going to be on this TNT show with the great Barkley, uh, Kenny Smith, the great Ernie Johnson, and we're going to have a good time. It will be the number one show. It was already the number one show, but we just, uh, you know, we just kept it going. So, you know, the companies, they, they understood that. And, and they stuck by me. Uh, sodas, sedans, speakers, suits, shoes, jewelry, lotions, balms, fitness centers, car washes, burger restaurants. Uh, I believe you make more money from endorsements, partnerships, and TV, you know, some 20 plus million annually than you did uh, w when you were playing from th that sort of stuff. What motivates you? What motivates me is, is just having fun. You know, the Shaq brand is all about the fun business. Uh, it's never been about money with me. I met Magic Johnson at 19 years old. They announced his name, crowd goes crazy. They announced my name, crowd also goes crazy. First time I meet Magic Johnson, he pulled me to the side and he said, it's okay to be famous. 
you want to start owning things. 19 years old, I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? But then as I, I watched him and I studied him, I was like, okay, this is what it means. And then my mother and father did a very good job of, of keeping me educated, keeping me understanding that, that 80% of athletes, when they're done playing, have nothing. So, you know, they stress education. Uh, you know, they forced me to go back to school, get my bachelor's, get my master's. My mother challenged me to get my doctorate. I did that. But along the way, I was like, you know what? They're right. Because it was a lot of times where I could have had a career-ending injury. And my mother always used to say, you had a good game, but what if you twist your knee and can't play no more? What you going to do? What if you, you blow your Achilles? What if? And the ironic thing was I knew that my career was going to end with a career-ending injury. I knew it. Why do you prefer not knowing the financial details of a deal before it's agreed upon? Because when you grew up not having money, money should never motivate you. And it doesn't motivate me. You know, being in partnership with somebody really motivates me. Helping a company go from A to Z really motivates me. Uh, being a, a, a role model to my children really motivates me. What are your business goals? What are my business goals? That's a great question. You know, just to just have a great partnership, just to help uh, my business and the other businesses expand, and, you know, just to have fun. You know, you ask the question why I don't talk about money. It's not important. You know, what's important for me was to go into Arizona and get a soda deal, just to be everywhere, you know, just to show the kids that I'm fun, you know, just to show the kids that I have a personality. That's what it's always, always been about. You had the first verified account on Twitter. Uh, Twitter founder Jack Dorsey said Twitter would not be the same, uh, you know, had you not come around. Um, what got you into that in the first place? It was an accident. You know, I'm a gadget guy. Uh, you know, I'm a technology guy. I always like to be the first. <clears throat> I'm playing for Phoenix, and this guy writes a nasty article, really nasty. So I stepped to him and said, why do you write this article? He said, because you said on Twitter these things. I was like, what the hell is Twitter? So he showed me. I was like, that's not me. Like, well, it says it's you. So then that day I created the real Shaq. And I was like, let me see how this things work. And funny, we were playing the Lakers the next day. So I was sitting on 24th and Camelback at the Ritz-Carlton outside, me and one of my uh, agents. And I said, okay, let me see how this thing works. I was like, hey, this is the real Shaq. And I sent the picture. I got two Laker tickets. If you want these tickets, come see me now. And I seen a guy do a Dukes of Hazard 360 in the middle of the street, like 10, no seriously, like 10 seconds later. Err, seen a guy park. I seen another guy running out the mall across the street, and I was like, wow, this is, this is really, really powerful. But I developed, I developed a strategy on how I use it. Because like, as I was watching everybody else, like I see a lot of wealthy people bragging. Yo, my house is 80,000 square feet. I got 100 cars, I got 100,000. I was like, I don't really want to do that. So my philosophy is 60% to make you laugh, 30% to inspire you. I may steal a quote or, you know, give you one of my favorite quotes. And then 10% to, you know, let you know what I got going on. Hey, I got the new monster speakers going on. And that's how I use Twitter. I don't really use it to make myself bigger than I am. And it's worked for me. I think I got 10 million followers and I like to make people, uh, I like to make people ha uh, have a good time. So you've had a lot of great business deals. One of your biggest business regrets, Starbucks and oh, Howard Schultz. The worst. Tell the story. 
So my, my agent calls me up and he says, Howard Schultz wants to do business with you. And I'm like, coffee, uh, Because growing up in my household, never seen a black person drink coffee. So it was my thought process that black people didn't drink coffee. And, and by the way, I loved your autobiography. <laughs> yes, and I was literally laughing out loud yeah, as you I, told I mean, that story. I, I never seen a black person drink coffee, so I was like, you know, we always used to see the commercials, fill it to the rim with brim. We used to see the commercials, but in my house it was always sweet tea, hot chocolate. I never seen birds, so I thought I didn't drink coffee. So anyway, Howard says, uh, Shaq, I want to give you the opportunity to, to go in with me and open up these Starbucks franchises in, in African-American communities. And I'm always a guy that, if I don't believe in it, can't do it. Won't ever do it. No, no amount of money can make me endorse something that I'm not 100% behind. So I looked at great Howard Schultz's face and said, uh, black people don't drink coffee, sir. I don't think it's going to work. And you should have seen his face. He was like, was like, all right. And, you know, we're still good friends today, but that was one of my worst business decisions. Because now every time, on every corner, in every city, in every country, I see a Starbucks, I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then Magic came and did the deal after me, and he just did great with it. One of your first investments after you got to the NBA, I believe, were coin-operated car washes. And your financial advisor, I think, calls you one day, and he's kind of freaking out because a quarter of a million dollars has gone missing. Take it from there. I was, I was being an irresponsible business owner because I had other monies coming in. I was paying my bills with other monies, but I was just, I was just having too much fun. Just having too much fun. You know, it's my job. Wait, to, but did, didn't you have the coin things in your uh, yeah, bedroom? Yeah, I had them in the house. Like, like I would get the the, the coins and the quarters, and I would just take them home and I just put them in my safe. Cause like I never seen so much change. And then, growing up in San Antonio, Texas, right outside the base, when I got my first car, they had a car wash. And I used to wash my little Bronco too every day. And I said, when I make it big time, I'm gonna buy about 20 or 30 of these, and I did. But so much money was coming in, and I didn't think you can take quarters and dimes to the bank like that. Like, I didn't wanna, want them to think I was, you know, breaking into vending machines. So I would just take them <laughs> and, you know, just take them, dump them in plastic bags and pillowcases, and, you know, just put them in the house. And he was like, with 200,000 or so. I was like, I think I got it in my safe. What? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I got a whole bunch of quarters in my safe. Yeah. Right before you get drafted, uh, you get a million dollars for an endorsement deal. And I spend it in one day. How'd you do it? Well, you know, when you're young, you don't have a lot of business savvy. There's two words you forget about, FICA and sales tax. So I thought I was getting $1 million straight up, but you forget about those things. So really I got about maybe like 600,000. So I go and I go buy a $150,000 car. No negotiations, I don't know nothing about negotiations. Guy could have told me 200,000 I would have bought it. So I go and I get a black Mercedes because that's what, that's what I always wanted. Black Mercedes and some nice wheels. Guy was like 150, write the check. And I come home, my father's like, that's nice, where's mine? I was like, you know what? You made me who I am, jump in. So we ride, told the guy, I want another one, same one I got. So they go 300000 right there. So we get home, and my mom was like, oh, that's nice. I don't want one that big, I want a little one. Because I know I got more money coming in. So I'm just like, I just want to take care of this stuff now. 
So I go get my mom one. There's 500000 right there. So now I got to get suits for the draft. I got to get jewelry. I got to get earrings. You know, I got to buy... I got to buy the Alpine pull-out deck, so when I go to the club, I got it with me. I got to get the alarm that calls the beeper and the phone. So a couple of days later, I got a call from the bank, who, who was a family friend, the manager of the bank, and he called me and he said, uh, you know how to read bank statements? I was like, yeah, I, I learned it in school. So as I was reading it, I was 80000 in the hole, and I was looking, and I was real embarrassed. And he was like, I know you got more money coming in. I'm, I'm going to just put this to the side for you. Then he touched my hand and he said, son, I watch you play here at high school. You're bright. You're, you're a smart young man. I don't want you to be like all these other athletes. Like I, heard, like I always hear that term all my life. I don't want you to be like all these other athletes. So I said, you know what? I got to get a financial advisor. So I met with a, with a whole bunch of guys. And uh, you know, a lot of guys were coming in. And I can remember old-timers saying, if it's too good to be true, don't do it. So a lot of guys came in, yeah. Uh, they say you're gonna get 40 million on your first contract. You give me the 40 million, I can turn it into 200 million. By the time you're 23, I was like, I don't like this guy. Another guy said the same thing. And then I met one little small, beautiful Jewish man who says, I'm in the savings bonds. You know, we're gonna put your money and you know, we're gonna start a subchapter S corporation from your family. So, you know, all the stuff that you're doing, you can write it off. I was like, you know what, shalom. Barak Hashem, I'm going with you, sir. And uh, his name was Lester Nesbitt. I've been with him, and you know he's like a father to me. Like every now and then, you know, I'll get cute. Like one time, uh, me and Tyson was in the uh, Rolls Royce dealership, and Tyson bought three. And I wasn't gonna buy three, but I wasn't gonna let him outdo me, so I, I bought two. Six hundred thousand going down the drain. Hey, I had it, but Lester called me like, hey, gotta stop this. So uh, he's been good to me. You know, it was right. The uh, right choice to make. Uh, uh, did you really? I mean, speaking of excess, which you know, I think when you were younger and playing in the NBA, you had probably a, a little more fun w with that stuff. Did you really once have a fish tank in your Mercedes speakers? Yes, I did. Have your bodyguard replaced yes, the fish that died I daily? Did. I did. Because you know, we always used to have competitions on the team. Or you could have the best car, best looking car, a lot of cars. So I was like, let me get a clear box with some fish in it. So we leave the house at 10.30. We buy two goldfish. We put them in there. We jam it all the way to practice. By the time we get to practice, the fish are in the bowl again. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work as, as I would have liked it to. Um, and what's going through your head when you're in that Rolls-Royce dealership and Mike Tyson's in there? Well, one, it was my first time seeing Mike. And then two, it was kind of a, it was kind of a double whammy that day. So Mike was there, and I didn't want him to outdo me. I didn't want him to think I couldn't, I couldn't do what he was doing. And then second of all, I had on some shorts, tank top, flip flops, and an older gentleman, probably 80 years old. So I was like, "Sir, how much is this car?" And he looks at me and says, "Can you afford it, Sonny?" So now my ego kicks in. I said, "What? What did you just say to me? Uh, can you afford it, Sonny?" He called me Sonny. I'm like, "Okay." Not only can I afford it, I want this one and I want that one. Like I didn't even look at it to see if I want this one. So it was just a, it was just an ego thing. Because you know Mike was buying three. He bought three cold ones and I couldn't let him outdo me. And then this guy was going to ask me, the Shackster, can you afford it? I was I was kind of upset by that. Tell about the Lamborghini that you eventually ended up selling to Amari Stoudemire. So I always wanted a Lamborghini. I'm a, I'm a small guy. 
that's operating inside of a big guy's body. Always been. I like to do. I like to do what little guys do. Like, like even today when I see these little guys in a Lamborghini, I'm like, I want one. Like my favorite car now is that that Corvette Z106, but I can't fit. I won't ever fit. So. But you will make the car. Yes, fit I will you. make it. I will, I will waste a lot of money making it fit. So. We're riding by a junkyard one day. I see a salvage Lamborghini. So I said, I'm gonna just get it. My guys are looking at me like a crazy. So we tried to stretch it, it didn't work. So then I bought a, a used Lamborghini, right? Cut it in half, took pieces from this, super glued together. My guy Ryan from West Coast Customs put a special door on it and it worked fabulously. Everything was good until one night, um, being very irresponsible, coming down 95, and I'm coming over a hill like this and I see a wet spot, but I'm like, I'm just gonna go over it. So as I go over it, I go into a 360 and into a 720. And I don't know what 720 plus 360 is, so let's just say 1080. <laughs> so I'll do that and then I'm coming this way and it's 18 wheeler coming. But I got enough time to get into my Dukes of Hazard mode, so I put it in reverse and I got off. I was like, you know what? No more sports cars for me. So then when I brought it to Phoenix, I was like, hey, Sell it to me. So I sold it to them and I got this big, ginormous truck. It was the end of the time with fast cars? Yeah. I, I still have one left. I still, okay. got a, I still got a red Ferrari okay. there. But he's been sitting for a while. How much were you teased growing up a because lot. of your size? A lot. I had, to, I had to figure out two things. Either intimidate you or make you laugh. I was always a bully until one day in fifth grade, had a spit wad. I threw it at the uh, chalkboard, it splattered, this kid rats me out. But prior to that, my, my, my father said, if you get suspended again, I'm gonna kill you. I'm gonna beat you like you, never been beat before because you're, you're irresponsible, you're, you're a medium level juvenile delinquent and moving at this pace, you, you're gonna be nothing in life. I'm not having that in my house. So I wait for the kid, I mean, cause no, First I go to the office, three days. So now I gotta go You're home. You're suspended for three suspended days. Suspended for three days. So now I gotta go home, I already know what I'm getting when I get home. But before I go home, I'm gonna whoop your ass. So I'm beating this kid up and I'm kicking this kid and he has a epileptic seizure. It's just me and the kid out there and he's on the ground shaking and I'm, now I'm frightened because, uh oh. So then a guy comes and he saves the kid. And you know, but after that, I go home, I get disciplined, my mother pulls me to the side and says, you're too big and too strong, you can't ever do that again. And that kind of that kind of stayed with me. I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. So then I was like, you know, I'm not going to beat people up. Let me, let me go to part, uh, plan B on how to get them to like me. Because I was always a class clown, funny guy. So now let me just, you know, do this a lot to get people to like me. And I just stuck with that rather than being a bully. Before that, how would people tease you? Shaquille. Sasquatch, big African. So I stutter when I talk, big dummy. Mm -hmm. And I was always shy. You know, I like, I would look at you and I would look at your test scores and you probably have a, you look like a smart, smart ass. You probably have an 80, you probably have a 90 or 80. I was intimidated by that. I was like, I'm not that smart, I can't do it. I was very, very shy. and always had self doubts about myself and just never thought I could do it, anything. What changed that? A geek, saved my life. Uh, junior year in high school, right before the state tournament, I got a, got a 68, I got one test left. Everybody's bullying this guy. 
So and I'm like, you know what? Like, he was cool. Like he never said anything. I never said anything to him. We called him McDougal. I wish I, I wish I could remember his name. We called him McDougal. So everybody was messing with him, you know. So I, I, I came to his aid. I was like, listen, y'all mess with McDougal, you gotta mess with me. I didn't really know him, so I was sitting, and then he came to the lunch table. He was like, man, appreciate it. I hear you're having some problems in government. I can help you out. I was like, what, you want to tutor me? So every day after school, he tutored me. And the way he tutored me, I was like, this really is not that bad. It was kind of easy. But because I had self-doubts and, and felt that I wasn't smart, like, I, I didn't even look at it. Like, I was, I'll, I'll never pass anyway. So he helped me out. That's when I realized that, that nerds and geeks are very cool people. And it also taught me another valuable lesson. You don't always have to judge people for who they are and what they do. So now I'm a nerd and I'm a geek. But anyway, this guy helped me out. We passed. We, we lose in, in the uh, state semifinals. But then the next year, whenever I have problems, I'm like, McDougal, I need help in algebra too. Or McDougal, I need help in chemistry. And he was always there for me. You mentioned the stuttering problem. I was speaking to your college basketball coach, uh, Coach Brown, yesterday, and he was telling me about how uh, one day, to his surprise, you came into his office. He's expecting you to ask him for one thing to get him out of, to get you out of a class, something like that. And you actually ask him if you can read your presentation to him before you have to present it to the front of the class. Um, how did you get over the stuttering problem? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I'm gonna tell you how. Well, first of all, when I took the speech class, I just thought it was a class to help you with your speech. Whatever, whatever that means. But no, you gotta get up and do speeches. I'm like, so now I'm terrified. I'm like, everyone knows who I am, but nobody really knows I'm stutter, because I'm cool with my stutter. Like, before I get into a stutter, I could be like, <laughs> like I could throw you off by, mm -hmm. by doing something crazy. So nobody knew, so now I'm terrified. But I can't drop the class, because I just can't do it. So I, I write the speech, and I go in Coach Brown's office, and uh, he helps me out. And he hooks me with a guy named, uh, Mike Mallett. It was Mike Mallett and Tommy Karam. They, they, were, they were over in the athletic department. So I would go every day and speak and speak and speak. Then I had a marketing class and uh, we had to present a project. So you know my project was all Shaq. I already had the Shaq shoes set up, Shaq soda, Shaq everything. And the guy looks at me and says, this is all good, it's all cute, but big guys don't sell. So now I go back to my room I'm like, okay, maybe he's right. So I'm watching Mike in the Mars Blackman commercial. I'm like, okay, let me get some of that. David Robinson has a commercial, let me get some of that. Why do you like Magic Johnson so much? He smiles, let me get some of that. So I did all that, put it in my brain, and that's, that's when I created the shack. I was like, okay, big guys don't sell, but again, I'm a little guy operating inside a big guy's body. I will sell, I guarantee you that. So that's when I said, okay, let me, let me get over this and let me, you know, present myself and let me present these products in the proper way. I was talking to your uh, mom as well yesterday, Lucille, a great lady. And um, she was talking about how growing up, you know, times were tough that you guys were on food stamps at times. She remembers waiting in a line to get a turkey for Thanksgiving, having to get uh, charity Christmas presents to give to you and your siblings. I seen um, her. Sorry to cut you off. I seen her almost fist fight with a bus driver. Over Cause, what? Because you know, well, I don't know what the rules are now, but let's just say like under five, you can ride free. So at five, I'm, I'm a big kid. So she pulls me on the bus 
And the guy was like, hey, you got to pay the extra dollar. She's like, no, I don't. He's only five. He's not five, lady, you're lying, you're trying. So they were going to do a fight. But, you know, my mother was a very, very strong woman. If I can remember, I think she put that two-piece on him, but I'm not sure. You know what the two-piece is? Bing, bing. Okay. <laughs> How tough were times growing very, up? Very tough. And In what ways? Like, like she said, food stamps, moving from relative to relative's house. And because I was on punishment a lot, I created a process that was called dreamful attraction. Like I used to be so upset at our circumstances that I always used to just sit there and be like, when I make it, I'm gonna get my grandma a big house. When I make it. And like for me saying when I make it, now I gotta go out and produce. Now I gotta go out and you know prepare myself. So instead of hanging out on the corner with the homies slinging the dime bags, I'm at the court. Instead of going to the club, following the girls, I'm in a room writing my raps or DJing. Cause like, I'm like, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. Because my mother's my favorite person in the world. And I've seen her times break down and cry. And I was like, you know what? I'm the man of the house. I gotta change this. And my grandmother, rest in peace, she's the only one that believed me. Cause again, I was a, really? I was a yeah, I was a medium level juvenile delinquent. Steal cars, beat people up. Still, I would just I would just do crazy stuff because I was a follower instead of a leader. What made you know she believed in you? Because she always used to tell me. Like, whenever I used to get on punishment by my mother and father, she'd come in and be like, baby, I believe you. And I'd be like, Grandma, when I get rich, I'm going to get you a house. I know, baby, I know. And she'd give me that intimate, it's intimate. In, in, I love intimate. Intimate, cheese, Danish rolls, and some <laughs> ice cream. She, I know, baby. You need, and she was like, you just need to stay out of trouble. I know. How much do you think I that know. helped you? A lot. Because she believed in it. And you know, my mother and my grandma, they're, they're my favorite two people. You were raised, um, you know, in addition to your grandmother's involvement in your life, by your mom and your late uh, yes. stepdad, who I know you love dearly and I'm going to ask you about in a moment. Um, your biological father was not part of your life. Why was there no interest on your end in, you know, having a relationship with him? Because, you know, the term stepfather, I don't really use. I use father. Uh, he's the guy who made me who I am. I'm in a big old house because of that man. I'm, I'm still relevant five years after playing because of that man. I'm responsible because of that man. So I thought it would be disrespectful to meet another man, you know, especially then. Uh, you know, he, he passed away a couple years. Uh, you know, if the time presents itself, I may say hello or say thank you, but. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people think I have horror feelings. I don't. Uh, sometimes I don't even think about it because, you know, the guy that that made me who I am today, I owe everything to him and him only. Growing up in a military household, you have to be big on respect. And I respect him. I respect a man that walks into a city hall, meets a lady. The lady has a son. He says, so what? He takes the lady and his son in and brings in his two daughters and they have a family and they raise a family. I respect the man that says, you know what, I got three kids, this army job's not paying enough, let me go do some side jobs to get some money. I respect the guy that says, you know what, I gotta get my family out of Newark, the drugs are bad, guys are starting to shoot and kill, let's move to Georgia, let's get a house, let's get a land. I respect the guy that says, you know what, let's go to Germany. I respect the guy that says, after Germany, let's go to Texas. And then, you know, I respect the guy that that works hard from check to check and will do whatever it takes 
I see my father borrow money to get my brothers and sisters Christmas presents. Best present he got me was an autographed Dr. J ball. Dr. J was my man. And, you know, me and my father had a good enough relationship to where if the money was tight, he pulled me to the side and be like, big man, I'm gonna take care of your sisters. I'm gonna get them the Barbies and the Barbies houses they want. I'm coming up short. I'll get you next time. And it was like, cool. You know, as long as they were happy, I'm cool. So one morning, everybody's out opening presents and I thought I wasn't getting a present and he opens the door. Let's go play some ball. Boom, and it was the Dr. J ball. And then uh, a couple weeks after that, Keep in mind, I'm still still troublemaker, still juvenile delinquent. A couple weeks after that, he gets some Nick tickets. Not good tickets, we're up top. Dr. J goes baseline, throws it down, crowd goes crazy. That's when I said, okay, that's what I wanna do. I'm a change man. From that day on, no more juvenile delinquent. Tried better in school, stayed out of trouble. They never had a problem out of me after that day. What was it about that day? Cause like, like I knew I wanted to be a rapper, I knew I wanted to be this, and I wanted to be that, but when Dr. J went baseline and the crowd went crazy, it was like, I want that. I want people to scream my name. That's what I want. So from that day on, I came and I practiced every day. Still wasn't any good. Practice, practice, practice. And that's also when I learned how to take criticism and turn it into motivation juice. Like instead of playing with the kids, I used to play with the men because I was their size. And they always used to say, you're terrible. You stink. You're never getting drafted. You're 13, you're six, eight, you can't dunk. Sit on the side. And then one day, my father comes in, he, he runs in. <laughs> it's a college coach. I don't know who he is. Dale Brown, LSU, he's gonna be up there talking. And you know, my father's big on scholarships because he wouldn't be able to afford to pay for any of us to go to school. He was, just go. Maybe he'll see you, maybe get a scholarship. Like, I don't want to go. Get your ass up, let's go. So Daryl Brown's talking, and I'm way in the back. Way in the back, because, you know, everybody, like, you know, when you get up there, you see all the best players on, on the base in the gym, and they're all, they're sitting there showing off. I'm like, no, nah, I can't go up there with those guys. So I'm sitting in the back. So Daryl's talking. I'm not listening. I have no idea what he says. So after the gym starts to fade out, I go up to him, and I was like, sir, uh, can you help me out on strengthening my lower extremities? <laughs> That's See, what he said. <laughs> I knew that word because prior to that, I was on punishment. And whenever I got on punishment, my father made me stand on the wall like this and read a dictionary. So I come upon the word extremities. So I hit Coach Brown with, yeah, can you help me to strengthen my lower extremities? And he looked, yeah, how long you been in the Army, soldier? I said, I'm not in the Army, I'm 13. He looked like he was in the Middle East and he was out there camping and he put a stake in the ground and he had the biggest oil eruption in, <laughs> in history. What? He says, I'm only 13. So he kind of grabs me like, like it's a secret. Where's your father? Like he's in the sauna. So he busts in the sauna and, and they talk to my father. And after that, never saw him again, but he wrote me every week, every week. And if email was, was out, I'd probably be getting an email every day like I am today. But he wrote me every day. Uh, speeches, game footage, this and that. And one letter said, even if you become a basketball player or not, I'm gonna give you a scholarship. Because I used to write him back like, hey man, I did everything you said. I tried out for the team. They still said I'm a bum. I didn't make it, I wanna give up. 
and he'd never give up. And he sent me speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King. But then by following his advice, I'm starting to come around now. Starting to come around now. So by the time I get to San Antonio my junior year, I'm a monster. Everybody in the country wants me now. And now I see the light. And then the final thing <clears throat> that my father did to ensure that I make it, to ensure that I have confidence in myself, John Conkak signs a contract for $15 million for three years. It was okay, but at that time, that, that's, that's unheard of. Uh, so I go watch him play. He's all right, but at the age of 17, I know I'm better. So I'm looking at my father, and I'm like, I can make $5 million by doing that? This guy only had six points in this game. It was San Antonio Spurs versus the Hawks. I was like, I can make $5 million doing this. So now I, I, I turn it up an extra notch. So now I'm outside playing in the sun. I'm up every day and I'm doing whatever it takes. And now I'm stealing, stealing stuff. There was a guy named Charles Shackelford from NC State. Okay. He had the knee pads. He had the bowl cut. I like that. People don't like saying Shaquille anyway. I'm Shaq. From now on, call me Shaq. I'm the new Shaq. I just took his old style. I'm Shaq. Let's start there. Look at this Patrick Ewing guy. Damn, he's me. Oh, he's throwing bowls. He, he, people scared. Let me get some of that. David Robinson, boy, damn, he running the floor. Man, let me get some of that. Ronnie Cycli, when he dunks, he gets his, his knees up. And, you know, taking business courses. If you look at Jordan's emblem, that's how he dunked, with the one hand like that. If you look at my Shaq emblem, dunking with the two legs up, I got that from Ronnie Cycli. Now, let me go to these great players. Let's see what everybody like. Why do you like Mike so much? Okay. Oh, he, he wins. He's a winner. Why do you like this magic so much? All right, he smiles. So all that, and you got Shaq. Now I'm saying, you know what, now I gotta go get it. Now all the stuff I said, and all the stuff people said, now it's time to turn around. And my first motivation to get drafted was to get my mother and father out of there. I don't want you doing nothing else. That's my first motivation. So when I got that million dollar check and spent it, was I upset? Yes, but I was also happy at the same time. Because I bought the man that made me who I am. He was riding in a $100,000 car on a drill sergeant's salary. And boy, was people on the post upset with him when he'd go to work every morning at 6 a.m. But it was a good feeling. My mother, who had, a, who had to drop us off in school in a caravan every day, I wanted to get her a fancy car. I wanted to get myself a fancy car. I'm finally here just by, just by staying out of trouble, just by being a leader and not a follower, and just by believing in a man who's not even my real father. Because he was a hell of a basketball player. So he would tell me all the time, do this and do that. And I'm really, how do you know? But whenever I go back to the neighborhood and talk to some of his old buddies, they say, Phil Butchie Harrison was the man. So as I listen to him, here I am today. And if he was here today, I would, I would, I would introduce you to him, and I would tell him thank you, and I would give him a kiss. It's interesting when you were uh, a freshman in high school, I think you're cut from the varsity basketball team and just devastated. Um, I don't believe you even try out for the varsity team your sophomore year. No, uh, um, I don't try out, but I meet a guy who runs a league similar to what the AAU is now, mm -hmm. and we still talk now. He's a big guy. His name was Ford McMurtry. Ford McMurtry. Ford, I hope you listen to his interviews. I want to let you know I love you. Uh, he believed in me. 
Like he would just work with me. Like and he, you know he to be a like he was a big heavy set guy and to be big and heavy set he knew his stuff. Like he would like work with me every day. So you know by the time I got around my sophomore year I could have made the varsity but. I didn't want to be let down again, so I was like, I'm not going to do it. And you went from being unable to dunk to your vertical leap grows two feet over the course of a year, from freshman year to sophomore year, and the rest is kind of history. I think you lead the team your senior year to a state championship in high school basketball, and after the game, your coach pulls you into the bathroom stall. What does he say to you? Well, he's crying because when I came from Germany, uh, nobody knew who I was. Uh, like, you know, a lot of times if you're a great athlete and you come from a school, you bring that baggage, you bring, you bring that footage with you. But I didn't have anything. I was just another skinny kid who talked a lot of trash, who was a little bit arrogant. Nobody really believed in me. So my junior year, we go 35-1. and one. Uh, The last game we lost, I missed two crucial free throws at the end. Messed up a single record, so I'm in the locker room crying. I tell the guys, this won't happen again next year. So we go 36 and over, my high school coach, not really a basketball coach, they're more football, baseball guys, Dave Madura. Like if you look at some of my high school footage, he's just sit there and he's, he's not calling no plays, he's not doing anything, he's just letting us play. Well, he pulls me to the day and he gave me a hug and he said, I love you. You will, you will be the best big man ever. And he like gave me a hug and he started kissing me and I'm like, I mean, because he was a tough guy. Like he was the guy that like, if you miss a free throw in a big game, he'd call you in after practice and just run you. So I actually thought he was mean. So like when he started hugging me and kissing, I was like, what are you doing, bro? Get your hands off me. But he was very happy, very excited, and very proud. And we made history. Jerry West, the legendary oh, Lakers, yeah. general manager, uh, Hall of Famer, the NBA logo. We, we featured him for an episode of the show. And um, he, you know, he said signing you was one of the most elated periods of his life. We've had so many conversations, and uh, you know, if you if you go throughout my career, my illustrious NBA career, it's been noted that I have problems with a few people. But if you do your research, the people that I have problems with were not authoritative figures. I respond excellent to authority. Dale Brown, Miss Class, get up 6 a.m. run. Dave Madura, Pat Riley, Phil Jackson. So Jerry West was like that. Whenever I make a mistake, boy, he called me in his office and he ripped me a new one. But see, it got to the point in my career where, like my father used to always say, don't, don't listen to how I say it, listen to what I say. So now even when you're yelling, I don't hear the yell, I'm listening to what you're saying. So I'm big on pecking order. Jerry West is the man, he's the logo, he's God in my eyes. So whatever he says, it has to be right. So when he's, ah, nah, 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 yes sir, you're right. Because you never, you never disrespect an authoritative figure. Because they can make you pay. What did he say to you when you slapped Greg Ostertag that one time? Oh, he was upset. He was upset. He was like, you're not showing good leadership qualities. It was the dumbest thing to do. Why'd you do it? You're not setting a good example for kids. Get out of my office. The, another one, 97-98 uh, season, Lakers get swept in the Western Conference Finals. I'm in the bathroom, and I'm tearing the bathroom up. Yeah, I mean, literally destroying I, it. I, I ripped three urinals out the wall. I ripped two toilets up. I ripped a couple of toilet doors out. I bust up a big <laughs> color TV, and Jerry West comes in. What the F are you doing? Like, I'm tired of losing. 
So he grabs me, like right here, and pins me up to the thing. You dummy. I went to the finals, I think he said seven times. I went to the finals seven times before I won. Your time's gonna come. So I was like, the great Jerry West went to the lost seven times before he won one? Oh, I don't feel so bad. So I, I still got a couple more times to lose before they really talk about me. And it just, just relaxed me a little bit. But, and, and keep in mind, he's the general manager yeah, at the time. Nobody in the locker room is touching like, you. Yeah, You're a seven-foot guy destroying the play. And he came in, because I guess he came in to address the team, but he heard me in there, and he just came in there, and he came in there like a gangster. What the hell are you doing? He just pinned me up. Like, you know, have you ever heard the term old man strength? He got that old man strength. He just, I don't know where he had it, but he just kind of, he kind of like brought me on my tippy toes a little bit. I was like, and because he's Jerry West's authoritative figure, I'm not going to be like, get off me. So, gave me a new perspective on winning and, you know, team building and, and all that stuff. So it kind of calmed me down a little bit. Kobe Bryant, we first started communicating after right. I taped the episode with uh, Kobe a couple of years back. And you wrote in your book uh, about him that he was just special. He was different from everyone else. Yeah, he was different. From day one. He, uh, How so? He had, a, he had an aura about him that I've never seen in an 18-year-old. The aura was kind of either this kid's really cocky or he, he's he believes in it. And you saw his consistency of, of how he did it. So I knew one day that he's gonna be whatever he sets out to be. And uh, you know, just the only thing that was that I had to I had to figure out a way to how to get him to perform at a high level. And I realized that we were the same people, don't like criticism, turn it into motivation. So, you know, being a leader, you have to you have to find out certain ways to get your employees to perform at a high level. Not everybody responds to this. Oh, come on. Like some guys you gotta And he was a guy that I know that if I talk smack, he gonna come out and try to score fifty. I think it worked perfectly. And, you know, if you look at if you look at all the groups that had alpha males in them, they all had problems. Beatles. Kobe and Shaq, it happens, you know? And I think it's a big myth. You know, people think you have to be lovey-dovey to win championships. And I just felt sometimes, you know, his way. And you know, he's a fabulous player, just felt, you know, sometimes that he didn't do it the right way. And I know he felt sometimes that I didn't work hard or whatever, whatever. But again, it all worked. Three out of four, we, are, we will be the most talked about, the most enigmatic, the most controversial duo the best one-two punch in the history of the game. And what we did and what I created with the back and forth, it always be talked about. I haven't, I haven't seen or spoken to him in 11 years, and now you ask me about Kobe Bryant, so my plan worked. Well, I don't think people question whether or not it worked. Obviously, winning three consecutive championships, it worked very well. Exactly. I think there are people that just wish it could have, you guys could have stayed together for longer because yeah. they wonder, how much better it could have even been than yeah, I, having. You know, I think one. about that all the time, but. The, 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 you do? The, yeah, I think about it all the time, but I learned living in Orlando that business overtakes everything. Doesn't matter how you feel, doesn't matter how they feel. So I learned in Orlando that, uh, you know, when players under me were, were getting offered big money, and I went in the office and tried to get the big money, and they was like, nah, that's okay. 
let's not let's not pay Shaq thirty million while he's going into his late thirties. Let's bring it down. But my point of view was not. Nope, I'm just we just won three out of four. I'm just getting started. I at least got one or two more championships into me. My money's not going to go down. So you, you can't bring me from thirty to twenty. Not with five kids. Right. No way. No, no, no. I'm not going down to win a championship. So they said we would entertain Shaq being traded, and I took offense to that. So I said, "Well, I want to go to Miami," and that's how that all started. In my interview with Kobe, he he told me that um, had you not left when you did, he probably would have left via free agency because he wanted to prove that he could win without the big man. What, what do you think the likelihood was that he had any involvement in? you know, you leaving? With me leaving? Uh-huh. Yeah, this, this, I don't want to say a lot, but he probably told them, or his agent probably said, uh, Shaq's still here, we're going to go. And then, but again, you have to think about the future. You can't think about a guy that's getting older. You got to think about a younger guy that, that's getting older. And I understand business. I have no problem with that. But being a businessman, approach me business-wise. If you insult me, now I'm going to take offense to that. Two uh, other moments involving both of you that I think were interesting, and then we'll move on. Um, one, early in the 99-2000 season, it's a players-only meeting. All the Lakers teammates are you know, saying not-so-nice things about Kobe. He's in the room, and then Phil Jackson and the coaches come busting in. What do you remember from that? Well, we had a couple of those meetings. And, you know, my whole thing was just, just, you know, play together. Just just play together. You know, it's not a one-man show, even though a lot of people wanted it to be a one-man show. Just, you know, play together. And we were just trying to get people to, to, to play the right way. But Phil, you know, I, I kind of sit back and said, how come Phil never said anything to Kobe and I? Because he knew it was going to work. He knew that we was going to push each other. And like when you get into Phil's mind and understand his psyche and his Zen master and all that, it worked. He thought the tension was good. Yeah, he thought it was good, and it was good because you know he's going to push me and I was going to push him. It was excellent tension. It, it seemed from reading your book possibly the uh, tensest part of your relationship with Kobe came just prior to the start of the 2003-2004 season. Uh, he's in the middle of the you, you know, rape trial, and the Lakers coaches call both of you in and tell both of you, stop sparring in the media. And then Kobe goes and does an interview and basically yeah. calls you fat yeah. and old and out of shape, and yeah. that you're we'll milking your injury to yeah. get more time off. And that's when I'm quoted as saying, I'm going to kill him. Right. Because we had the truth, I'm going to kill him. But, you know, the key thing that was there was the respect thing was there seem to hate each other. If he gets double team, he's going to still drop it off for the lob. Uh, a la game seven versus Portland. If we hate each other so much, how come after he crossed Scotty up, how come he didn't take the shot? And, and that was one right. of the kind that's, of that's pinnacle a, that, moments. That's, of... Yeah, that's a, one of the most historical players together. If he hated me so much, why after we after the, the, the bell, after the, the clock hit zero, who's the first guy to jump tomorrow? So the respect thing was there. No, again, people, it's, I'm, I'm telling you now, it's a myth if you think that if you're working in a closed environment, everybody gets along. I guarantee you that's not the case. I know for a fact it's not the case. So especially when you got two alpha males that, that want to be in charge. But the respect has to be there. Why do you think you guys haven't talked 
since you played together? Because we don't need to talk. It's nothing to talk about. It's, you respect each other, but yeah, you don't like I, each other. Listen, no, it's not that I don't like them. I, I, I never said I didn't like them. You never heard me say I didn't like them. You know, NBA stands for nothing but actors. Don't, don't you ever forget it. Don't you ever forget it. And, you know, we, we've, talked, we've talked 40 times after that. Last time I seen him, we hugged each other. We had a, we had a good. Why did you say you didn't talk in eleven years? Because I wanted you to think that we didn't talk. <laughs> but now I'm giving up the secrets. No, no. Last time I was out there, I saw. Okay. At a game, I saw, and we hugged. What's up? Boom, boom. We had a conversation. It was good. Hey, man, I'm not gonna. You know, this guy guy has stuff to do. I have stuff to do. As long as the story is told forever, I'm happy with that. Phil Jackson. Uh, what was discussed in your very first meeting with him? He's like, listen, you're doing good, but no more rapping, no more videos, no more movie. I need you to concentrate. I'm like, why? I make a lot of money doing it. Why would I stop doing that? So, because if you listen to me, you can get MVP this year and we can win a championship. I was like, all right, I'm, 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 I'm gonna give it a shot. And it actually kind of worked. I think that year I was 29, played 79 games, MVP by far. I actually would have made history, but some idiot in Atlanta, I wish I could say his name because I would call him an idiot to his face. He messed up history. I would have been the first ever unanimous decision MVP. Hmm. But this idiot, forgot his name. Fred Hickman. Yeah, Fred Hickman, idiot, gives two votes to Allen Iverson and he messes up history. Idiot. After all the hard work I put in, idiot Fred Hickman messes up history. Everyone knows that that year I was off for blood. Everyone knows. Because Phil gave me the blueprint on how to win the championship. And again, authoritative figure. I checked his resume. Got six with the great Michael Jordan. I want to add to that. So, yes, sir. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. What were his team meditation sessions like? Being from the hood, I know what cannabis smells like. <laughs> so he had something that was the cousin of cannabis, whatever the <laughs> hell that means. Sage. Sage, yeah. Yeah. So he come in and he said, okay, guys, close your eyes. So he'd be waving around. I'm going, we eat. And I'm looking, close your eyes, Shaq. So we're sitting there, and, and it was sort of, sort of like my dreamful attraction. He would say stuff like, see yourself at the parade. See yourself winning the championship. See yourself dominating the game. See yourself hitting free throws in clutch situations. Would, we would actually do that. And I was like, I'm already used to this, so. A lot of times it was cool. A couple of times you get tired from hanging out the night before and you, you hear guys going <sighs> But it was, always, it was always helpful. And the thing that made Phil so good, and I even do this today, he does everything the same way every day. It's called ritual. I have certain rituals that I will not break because of that. Like I do the same thing every day. He said something about you that I'm sure wasn't intended to be critical, but there's no other way to really look at it, that, that if you worked harder, he thought you could have won 10 consecutive MVPs. When, when you heard that, what was your reaction? I, I wasn't going to win 10 consecutive MVPs because it was only one of me, and they weren't going to give it to me every year. Uh, you know, a lot of people say you should work harder. But then I, I asked them, how do you know? What do you know? First year, average 29. Who did better than me? So if, I'm, so if, if Tim Duncan is averaging less than me, he's not working hard? Is that what you're saying to me? So a lot of times when people talk, it doesn't make sense. First year, 29, win championship. 
Second year, I averaged 27. We still won a championship. Third year, I averaged 27 again. We won a championship. I'm going to do what I got to do. In the words of Allen Iverson, we talking about practice. Did I work hard in practice? No, never. And let me tell you why. The guy that, that, that I'm playing against, they're under me. So to try to show that they're worthy of being an NBA player, they would touch me up. So it's my philosophy, I'm not gonna get touched up twice. I'm not gonna get beat up in practice. And I'm not gonna get beat up in the game. So I'll chill in practice and I'll give you my all in the game. So when they used to see that, it was, oh, he's not working hard, but I'm not. I'm not gonna work hard. I'm gonna go out in front of these 16,000 people and give you 28-10. I'm going to go out and dominate. I'm going to go out hit clutch free throws when I need them. That's what you pay me for. You don't pay me to come in here at 9, from 9 to 12. And it's, and it's actually a bad way to think. It's actually a bad way to think. No, no, no player that's listening to this interview should, should do what, I'm, what I did. Don't do it. But I knew that if I didn't practice, I knew I'd have to step up in the arena. And I did most of the time. So... You know, again, you got to listen to what people say and how they say it. So his statement is partly correct, but that was my philosophy. I'm not going to go give you three hard hours a day getting beat up and go home and get beat up and have to overdose myself on painkillers to get ready for the game. So I'm going to chill out and practice and let these guys do what they do. I'll be ready in the game. Don't worry about it. I got you. To what extent do you think you made the most of your talent? Uh, probably when I didn't have any knick-knack injuries. And, uh, you know, my, my goal was to just win one. So I'm, I'm overqualified. <laughs> I am. I'm over, I've, I did it. That was just my goal to win one because I used to get so much flack for not winning one. Just one and one. So let me get two. Let me get three. Only regret I have right now is two regrets. Actually three. Missing 5,000 free throws. Not passing up Will Chamberlain in points, and uh, not not being being higher on the scoring list. That's it. Those are my only three regrets. You had no more regrets. championships than Will. Yeah, I got more championships. But you know they, like, I'm very. When it comes to basketball conversations, I'm very arrogant. I only want to hear my name. So when they say who's the most dominant player ever, I want them to say my name. I don't want them to be like, ah, uh, maybe Will, maybe Shaq. That that's. That don't fly with me. I want them to say Shaq. Does, so, does that really bother you? Yeah, it does. Because that was my niche. I wasn't going for the greatest player niche. I wasn't going for, you know, the, the best. I wasn't going for that because those, those words are, you know, those words are just thrown out. You know, words like most dominant, you got to earn that. So, Will averaged 50 in one season. He did. He averaged 50 in one season. So, when I got really close to him, I think I needed to average like 10, 12 points my last year in Boston, and I would have passed him up. So when I had the career and the injury, I was like, damn, I'm not going to pass Will. So those are my only three regrets playing. I have no other regrets. I got four rings when I only won it one. I'm good. Uh, Dwayne Wade, uh, you get to Miami, and the two of you have lunch. Why was it important to you to be so open about the issues you and Kobe had because, coming into that situation? Because when you don't know a person, you have to go to what you hear or what you see. There's three ways to manipulate the mind. What you hear, what you see, and what you read. So he don't, he, he don't know me. He just know that I got a problem with a guy that takes shots. He takes shots. So I said, listen, that's how it goes now. But a boom, but a bam, but a bang. 
And at this point, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm tired. I don't, want, I don't want to argue with another guy. Me and Penny had a little beef. Me and Kobe had beef. Maybe I am the asshole. So let me, let me change this narrative right now. D, but a man, but a being. You the man, it's your city. I can help you win. I know what I gotta do. You know, a lot of people don't know that. In the finals, I was having a terrible finals. I don't, I don't know what was going on, but we were down 0-2, so I flipped it. What you gonna do, D-Wade? I got three people on me. Flash, Antoine, Gary. What you gonna do? I got four people on me. What the hell y'all gonna do? So that, that was my way of getting, and then we just, three game, bing, 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 everybody responded. It worked, so. But we, we didn't have any problems because I was just tired at that point. I don't want to, it's your team. You know, I don't even, because it don't mean nothing. It was my team in LA and look, I got traded. So that don't mean nothing. So you keep it, young fella, it's yours. But he was a, he, he was a perfect player. Like if you open, he don't bang, bang, bang. And then like, you know, we had to tell him, yo man, shoot. You got Graham on you, bro, shoot. Graham can't guard you. <laughs> I don't just shoot. So like, you know, we had to tell him to, to sometimes be aggressive, and, and it worked. Tell about the time in practice that Pat Riley throws Jason Williams out where you knew your days in Miami were numbered after that? Well, we were having a terrible season. I was hurt. Pat didn't bring some of the players back. We're getting killed. Of course, it's my fault because I'm hurt, whatever. So Jason Williams, who's a friend of mine who lives across the street, who I helped bring in, him and Pat really didn't get along. So he was a couple of milliseconds late. Pat had this clock, you know the clock that got the four dots on it, sure. zero point. So he's a couple of milliseconds late. So Pat throws him out. But me being the peacekeeper, nine nine, we're a team, you gotta stick together, we'll get through this. Pat's like, you wanna be a tough guy? You get out. So now you you so now you testing me. So I said, throw me out. So he started walking towards me, we were walking towards each other. We didn't get to touch each other up, I leave. And then I realized my, my, my days were outnumbered. But what, what upset me is that, you could have told me, don't just, don't just send me to the doctor's office to get an MRI and then I get a call and I say I've been traded. So if you're gonna be a businessman, let's do business. Let's do proper handshake business. Tell me to my face, I'm gonna be traded. Uh, changing topics, uh, charity. Um, you know, we were speaking about your upbringing earlier and obviously you guys were poor, did not have a lot of money. Um, but there's one time uh, your father's, Philip is uh, taking you out to get a burger and sees a homeless guy. What ends up happening? He's driving and he sees a homeless guy and some army fatigues. Like if you ever saw a guy in army fatigues, he's pulling over. So he sees a guy, he makes a UE in the middle of the street, he's talking to this guy, and he recognized the platoon that the guy was from. Man, I know, I know did you know what, yeah, I knew him and then there. So the guy was down on his luck, and my father had, we had like five double cheeseburgers left. My father had $20. And in my mind, I'm like, what are you doing, bro? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna eat that later. When y'all go to sleep, after everybody get there, I'm gonna eat, what are you doing? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, selfish at this point. Like, we, you finally get some change, I get the, I get to stop eating army crackers and army cheese. I want, this is my food. So he gives the guy the food and he gets in the car and he slams the door and he got a little tear in his eye and he just looks and says, if you ever make, make, and like I remember these words, if you ever make a big time, make sure you help those in need. And then on, on uh, 
on uh, Thanksgiving. You know, he would go to the barracks, round up the troops, and we would go. We'd have blankets, we'd have all the army rations that, that, that they were getting ready to throw away. Whatever we can, spam, peanut butter, bread, give it to the homeless people. So those are three things that I do today because of what a man that made $30,000 a year taught me. From a woman who was a secretary, probably made 20000 a year. They taught me that. So, you know, a lot of people, when they look at, they look at me and the charities that I do, this is from the heart. Like sometimes when, 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 when I see people doing charities, I could tell they're just doing it for, for the moment. Like, for example, whenever it's a hurricane relief thingy, thingy, people who you never see do anything, all of a sudden they just pop up and they're tweeting about it. Like I, I, like, like I tell people all the time, I do a lot of stuff seen and unseen. Like, it doesn't matter to me if you know that I just fed 10,000 homes. That, that I'm doing this because this was, was what I was taught. I'm doing it because to walk in there and see a family put a smile on their face for a day, that's, that, that's, just, that's just awesome to me. What do you do when you see a homeless person now? I get, I get sad. I really do. I get sad and I try to help them out. I do. I really get sad and I try to help them out. And then, you know, a lot of times, you see, a lot of times you got to put a lot of things into factors, like, like, I don't want to give them money to support their drug habit, you know what I mean? So, like, if I see a guy that's by a restaurant, I'll be like, my man, you want some food? Or, like, if I go in the groceries, like, like one time, there was a guy sitting outside the store, and I, I, was, I was in New York, I was at a grocery store. I was like, you want some groceries? He's like, the guy don't want to let me come in. I was like, you with me, come in. So as soon as I brought him in, the owner come and yell, ah, I don't want to hear that shit. He with me, I'm buying him some food. Oh, Shaq? Yeah, Shaq. Oh, okay, get him whatever you want. So I give the guy some food, I give him some groceries. Then I still give him some money. And like, if I ever give him some money, I always tell him, no drugs, bro. Try and get back on your feet. And every now and then, you know, guys will be like, man, I'll try. Honesty, man, I'll try. And some guys will be like, thanks, man, I appreciate it. You're the first guy to do it. So like, whenever I see a homeless guy now, I gotta, I gotta do something because that's just, that's, that's hard. And I can remember calling my dad one day. He saw me on the free throw line and he was, and I was, it looked like I'm, the pressure was getting to me. And he was like, yo, pressure getting to you, punk? I'm like, a little bit. He's like, let me tell you what pressure is. Pressure is when you don't know where your next meal is coming from. And he hangs up. And he used the P word, punk, not that P word. That's what pressure is. Make twenty million dollars. I don't want to hear that shit. Pressure's when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, and he hangs up. And I thought about it. I was like, that is pressure. And like when I ride by and I see a homeless guy, I'm like, that that's pressure. This guy, especially in New York when it's cold. Come on, bro. Would, Man. Whether it be visiting an ill child in the hospital, donating money or something else, what's been the singular, most personally satisfying? thing you've done? Well, they all have been satisfying. One time a grandmother had a, had a kid that couldn't walk. I bought her a van. And see, like these are stories that you'll never hear. I, I bought her a van. Just the other day, I get, a, I get an email, a little beautiful, and, I, and I'll give you her mother's number so you can talk to her. A little beautiful girl that has cancer, A. Marie. So the mom hits me in the email. I don't know if this is your email, but my daughter, she calls you Bubby. She would like to see you, I'm in LA. So I hit her back, I'll be in LA, I'm, I'm gonna come see you. This isn't Shaq. I'm like, all right, whatever you say. So I go see her and 
she wasn't doing well before before I wanted to go see her. So now that I went to see her, her spirits are up, she's happy. I told her to hang in there. And you know, just just seeing the kid kid smile. Just seeing the kid smile. I uh it's fulfilling to me, you know, to, to know that that a former high level juvenile delinquent who all the experts said was gonna be in the army like his father, who all the people said he was gonna be a bum, all the people said he wasn't gonna do anything, is now the guy that's, that's making kids all around the world smile. That's my thing, I just wanna make you smile. Explain your interest in being part of the SWAT team and the rope you had put at your house. I got two uncles in my, in my family that were all law enforcement. I love law enforcement. I love cops. I love being a cop. Uh, my final dream when I'm retired with everything, no more TV and all that, is to be sheriff. I realize that I have a voice. I realize I speak all languages. I speak the Shalomian language. I speak the brother language. I speak the juvenile language. I speak the kitty language. I speak the political language. I think I'll be an excellent sheriff. And my business philosophy has not failed me yet. Eisenhower said the greatest of leaders are the ones smart enough to hire people smarter than me. So when I become sheriff, I'm gonna have some smart guys around me. So I know I do a fabulous job. But when I, when I graduated from LA, LA Sheriff Academy, I put on a uniform and I go out. It's like a movie. Like, like, like we couldn't even do our job properly because people coming up, taking pictures. So I moved to, to Grand Theft Auto. Similar to the same thing, then I moved to Crimes Against Children Task Force. But as I'm looking at the squad guys, I'm like, I'm big, I'm strong, I can kick a door off. So I go through the SWAT test, everything's good except when it comes to climbing a rope. I can't climb the rope at all. So I convinced them, I said, okay. You know, they were like, well, you're big, we never had a guy this big, you know, maybe we'll, we'll get, I was like, nah, you can't give me nothing. Nah, nah, I don't, nope. Because if you do that, these guys that I'm walking in with, they'll never trust me. And that's why I went to the police academy. I don't want you to give me no badge. Don't give me nothing. I want to earn it. I'm a son of a military drill sergeant. We, we earn what's ours. Went every day. During, during the championship years. I don't know if Phil or know, but after school, I mean, after practice, I go to the academy. Put on my uniform, go to the academy. So I'm like, no, no, don't give me. But what about if you put knots in a rope? Yeah, some places do that. Okay, we'll do it. All right, give me a couple of weeks. So I put this <laughs> on the side of my house. I got a 50-foot rope with knots in it. So every day I'm doing it, I couldn't do it. So then one day I just get pissed off and I'm doing it. Boom, 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 boom. I'm so happy that I called my kids and everybody come outside. I mean, you know, my house is like three stories, so I'm up there now. So I'm looking at them, but I forget where I was. Like, hey, look, and I let go and I, Bow, fall right back on my back. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't think I want to be on a SWAT team anymore. <laughs> I'm done with the SWAT team. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of things like that. I just, you know, I just love, I just love challenges. Because again, if you look at those guys, they're just so opposing and they're just so brave. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to be the last guy to come in, kick in your door, suspect, get him in a prone position, line him up. House is secure, bring them out, everything's safe. I love that. And I was amazed by your commitment to it because when you were in the police academy, this was actually in season while in you're season, playing. While there'd you're be playing, doing the playoffs, all of that. There'd be like practice days in town, practice would go to noon. You'd be at the police academy from one to 
10 p.m. Only time I didn't go was the night before games, a lot. A lot of times I didn't go the night before games. What was your most memorable raid? I can't talk about it. You know, that's illegal. Oh, come on. I, I did have one where we hit the wrong house. And, and, and I'll let you look that up and I'll let you talk about it. You know, you're not really allowed to talk about it. <laughs> but, Virginia Beach? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> you did your research. Ah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I know, yeah, you, yeah you're, you're a good detective. I could tell you this, though. It was, in, it was in farm country. You know how most houses, they got the letters that you can buy at the store, that you mm -hmm. nail them? Right. So he's looking for, let's just say, 7546. But we went to 7549. But the nine, one of the nails had came out, and it eh, made it look like a six. So we hit the wrong house. What happened? <laughs> I can't tell you. We got in a lot of trouble, just put it that way. Tell about the different degrees that you have. And, and do you really have, you mentioned you want one of your kids to be a lawyer. Do you really have uh, interest in going to law school? Yeah, to I have, yourself? yeah, I have interest in going to law school. Uh, bachelor's degree. I leave school, I get 40 million. I get 100 million. I get 80 million. But I'm getting calls once a week. Yeah, you're doing movies, you're doing albums, but you promised me, baby, that you would go back to school. Never liked to let my mom down, so. And then, you know, I left my junior year, so I was only a few credit shorts. So I go back to school, one hot, two hot summers in Baton Rouge. And I'm loving it, but I'm hating it at the same time, but I'm like, just let me do this for my mom. So in 2000, I graduate with my bachelor's degree. But then I realized that when I go to a business meeting, let's just say you're my agent and the guy's over here talking about business, they were, they were hey Shaq, how you doing? Then they talk to my guy. And I found that to be disrespectful. I'm like, I'm making the final decision anyway. What you looking at my agent for? I understand. Oh, you don't think I understand your terms? I'll be back, University of Phoenix. Uh, masters of business, just you know, just to let them know that I understand what's going on. So now you can talk to me, and I'll relay the information to my agent. Don't even look at him. You talk to me now about the terms, about this, about the JV, all that stuff. Talk to me about it. So I did that. My mom comes and she set me up too. She's like, you know, we don't have no doctors in the family. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, we don't have any PhDs in the family. So I'm like, I could be the first out of all the O'Neills to be a doctor. Okay, I'll be back. So then I go to Barry University. It took me five years. Uh, I become a PhD. It was awesome. And now, not only was it awesome for me, it's awesome for my for, for my kids. I got I went to a parent parent teacher conference one time, and a guy recognized me as Dr. O'Neill. He didn't call me Shaq. Dr. O'Neill, how are you, sir? I also have a doctorate in education. And we had a whole conversation. It was awesome. Like. You know, as a dad, I was, that was awesome. Being Shaq is awesome too, but, you know, I come in in a suit, and, I'm, and this guy, he addressed me as Dr. And I was like, and like I'm looking at my son, and my son is looking really proud. Like, not only is he proud that I'm the Shaqster, but he's also proud that his daddy is the doctor. So even though I did it for myself, I did it for them also. And it's a building here in Orlando. I want it. I want it so bad. And it's a lot of great lawyers here in Orlando. See, what I'm, I'm good at, I'm the black Jerry West. I could put a hell of a hell of a team together. So my goal is to just get these, you know, get these lawyers that got their own little law firms, put them together, and we make a hell of a partnership. But again, if I just buy a building, put my name on it with other lawyers, they're gonna be talking over my head. You understand what I'm saying? But if they know and understand that 
I also have a law degree. I'm in charge. Everything will go right. So think about law school. Because I just want to, I just want to, not, not that I want to practice law, I just want to have a law firm. I take care of everything. I want to be the new Johnny Cochran of law. <laughs> That's my goal. And I, and I talk about it all the time. And I use Dreamful Attraction. It will happen one day. Just don't know when. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.